0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, Nats fans, welcome to the second homestand and one of the longest homestands of the season. Walters is a great spot to meet up with friends and grab a bite to eat before any Nats game.
1: This week, Walters has added Bolt pork croquettes to the menu, a great appetizer to share with friends over a bucket of old-time lager. We're driven by the search for better. But when
2: it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all You need indeed.
3: And Gray rocks, kicks, and deals. Swing and a miss. He struck him out with a curveball. Yet another strikeout for JoJo Gray, who's piled him up. Now the pitch. Swinging a ground ball to first, fielded by Bell. He's going to flip it to both, who steps on first, and bang! Zuma Curly W's in the books. The Nationals take game one of the day night doubleheader from the Diamondbacks. The 0 2. Swinging a ground ball rolled left side. Shortstop Fox
2: in, fields, fires, and it's in time. And Joanna Doan becomes the first national starter this
3: season to finish six innings. And it's the first time he does so, and is very brief big league career. And the 1-1 pitch. Swing and a fly ball left field. Thomas moving back. He's there and he makes the catch. Bang! Zoom!
0: A sweep of the doubleheader and a curly W is in the books. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, April 20th, 2022, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MadisonSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, do not look now, but the Nats are six and seven and do not look now, but the Nats finally this season have gotten an outing of at least six innings from a starting pitcher. Yes, it actually finally happened and it happened on what ended up being a tremendous day for the Nats. The Nats on Tuesday sweeping a doubleheader, against the Arizona Diamondbacks in Nationals Park. Six won the final in Game 1 on Tuesday afternoon. Won nothing the final in Game 2 on Tuesday night. The Nats pitching in both games ended up being really good. Tanner Rainey did walk the tightrope in the ninth inning of Game 2, but Mark, Tuesday ended up being a good day for the Nats.
1: With all apologies to Charlie Slows, everyone, remember where you are so you'll remember where you were. When Joanna Adone threw six and a third innings and took the mound in the top of the seventh for the first time this year. It was a thing of beauty. It was a great thing to see. You know, you knew somebody would get there eventually. It just required quality performance. And I'm going to put a little bit of a downer on this. I think the Diamondbacks' lineup, having now watched them for 18 innings, is uh, a bit lacking. I will say that when I saw their lineup this morning and looked through it, there were a lot of names in there I just don't even recognize. Maybe these are young kids who've got a chance to blossom into something. But for right now, they're not the most imposing group. But good on the Nats. They made the most of it. They took advantage of it. And I don't care who you're facing. You win a, win- a game one nothing. you did a lot of things right. Because all it takes is one mistake to botch a game like that. So I, in a lot of ways, I actually think the one nothing victory is most impressive.
0: Well, you know, we talk about what matters and what doesn't for the Nationals this season. And you know, I said to you going into this season, I'm not concerned with the wins and the losses. I think a lot of people are of that mindset. But what matters, right, is how young players do. And I think what makes Tuesday a particularly good day, you had two young starting pitchers do well over these two games. And that, to me, was such a great thing to see. Josiah Gray in game one, one run, five and a third innings, eight strikeouts, and then Ioana Adone in game two. I mean, I don't know if it's too dramatic to say that he was pitching for a spot in the rotation, but he might have been. You know, he had struggled over his first two starts in the rotation. I think if you're classifying who's number one through number five in the rotation, Adone pretty clearly is the number five. I mean, over his first two outings, he had allowed 10 runs in nine innings, and he goes out there on Tuesday night And he provides clearly the best outing that a Nat starter has provided this season. Now, to your point, the Diamondbacks are not a good team. There's no question about that. But six and a third scoreless innings. I mean, for this pitching staff, six and a third scoreless innings are six and a third scoreless innings. I mean, we've been begging for something like this and we get it. And of course, it's Joanna Doan of all people who provides it. He has five strikeouts. He gives up just three hits. He issues two walks, 88 pitches. He looked good. Josiah Gray looked good. I love seeing this. Like, you know, it's one thing if, I don't know, a Josh Rogers does this. Like, that's fine. That's nice. But a guy like Gray, a guy like Adone, two potential building blocks. In the case of Gray, obviously there's real pressure on him to be a building block. I think that's a particularly good thing about Tuesday for the Nets.
1: Yeah, it is a nice way to put it all together. Take a doubleheader and and establish a good narrative from the entire afternoon and evening when you can have two young starters who do that. And it doesn't matter who you're facing. You know, you still have to go out and do the job. In a don'ts case, he set the tone immediately. First inning, nine pitches, seven strikes and mostly fastballs. He was pounding them with and just never let up along the way. You know, a couple of little jams, but nothing all that serious. And he gets through the fifth on 66 pitches. And you're saying, okay, he's coming back for another inning. And then he completes the six on 10 pitches. And now we're saying he's not just going to go six. He might go seven or at least get the chance to. And he comes back out and face two more batters in the seventh. So he stuck with it all the way. There was no fading at any point. It was nothing like, well, as the pitch count's getting up there or, you know, facing the third time, the lineup. That wasn't a big deal at all. They went one for six against him the third time through the order. So that's a great sign. I go back to his last start in Pittsburgh. It was the series opener there when he gives up six runs on nine hits and four and two thirds. Most of the damage came in one inning, the bottom of the third, Give up four runs on six hits. They crushed him that inning. But he came back the next two and was pretty solid after that. And if you remember from watching the broadcast, Kevin Franson alluded to maybe something was going on there. In the third inning, maybe the Pirates had figured out something about him tipping his pitches. It seems like they caught it. They made an adjustment. And I think whatever he did in this game here against the Diamondbacks suggests that he took the information he was given, he applied it, and he succeeded. And I think that's a great sign for a young pitcher to be able to make adjustments like that. Then the last game on the fly, this one coming into it, that bodes well, because that says that maybe the only reason he was hit hard and gave up those runs last time was that something was going on that he didn't realize he was doing. If his stuff is actually this good, that's a really good sign.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about it, don't right? Davey Martinez publicly lobbied for him to be in the rotation. Davey doesn't often do that. So there's something to him that Davey likes and presumably others within the Nats management team like as well. He's a bigger guy, 6'2", 246. I know we don't often talk about pitchers' weights, but he's actually the heaviest pitcher on the Nats staff. And I don't mean that like he's overweight. I mean, like he's got some mass to him. He throws hard. We know that. So there is something there. He had struggled over those first two outings, but, you know, you don't want to overreact to two starts like that. So we do see on Tuesday night what he's capable of doing. And, you know, with this rotation, like we've discussed, you know, this team is begging for anyone to step forward and provide quality pitching. OK, and I mean, to me, it doesn't matter who you are, what your contract is, or your background is, like anyone who can do the job, please demonstrate that you can do the job. And if a don't can do that, that's great. So good for him. Was very happy for him to see him do as he did on Tuesday night. And then with Josiah Gray in game one on Tuesday afternoon. So, you know, he struggled in his first outing of the season, but he was quite good in outing number two. And then he was good again on Tuesday afternoon. And I got to tell you what is really jumping out here. And I brought this up to you the last time we talked about Josiah Gray, but the strikeouts, eight strikeouts, in five and a third innings. You look at Gray now so far this season, three starts, 14 and a third innings, but 18 strikeouts over the 14 and a third innings. He's averaging 11.3 strikeouts per nine innings. And he last season in his time with the Nats averaged about a strikeout per inning. So that's really good. Like, you know, the sample size is starting to grow here a little bit with Josiah Gray. And I think we can say he's a strikeout pitcher. And that's good. Like, there's a a lot of value in that. Now, you know, he's only totaled the 14 and a third innings over his three starts. So you want to see him add some length to his outings. But his ERA is 314. Like I said, 11 plus strikeouts per nine innings. You know, nobody is totally sold on Josiah Gray. But I think you like what you're seeing from him. And you certainly like what you saw from him on Tuesday afternoon.
1: Yeah, what we're seeing is like last year, when he's on, he's really good. And you can tell because he is getting the strikeouts. When he was at his best Last year, those were the high strikeout games. Remember, 10 of them in Atlanta one night, 8 of them in this game. It's mostly a function of his curveball, which was outstanding in this game. But it's also about getting the two strikes to be able to now throw that pitch and finish them off. He was facing, I don't know if I've ever seen this before, he was facing a Dimebacks lineup with 9 left-handed batters. So some of them are switch hitters, but against him, a righty, literally everybody he faced was left-handed. That's a tough thing to do. Uh, I don't care who you are. And he knows that's where the curveball comes in. He throws the curveball more to lefties, the slider more to righties. So he barely threw any sliders in this game. But it shows the advanced repertoire that he has, that he can kind of pitch a different game against a lefty heavy lineup like this and can have success. So I was really impressed with that. He had one jam in the fourth that he pitched his way out of thanks again to a strikeout he finished strong I think he could have kept going he was at 87 pitches and five and a third and I was actually thinking boy on the opener of a double header where you need the innings maybe Davey lets him go but I got it it's the number three and number four hitters left-handed hitters you have do little warm and ready and what was then I think still a tight game what was it 2-1 at that point. So I get it. Doolittle did good job, get out of it, and they went to the rest of the bullpen. I think we're going to see him take the reins off Josiah a little bit here as we move forward. Davey talked before the game about how there's going to come a point here where they want him to go seven innings, 110 pitches. I think we're getting there. As he starts to establish himself, if he can keep the pitch count down like that, Show he can get hitters out, you know, second time through the order. I think there will be a day here fairly soon where we see him extended. And that's a great sign. That's kind of the next progression for him. It's that and just consistency from start to start. I said when he's really good, he's been really good. When he's not, he's been really bad. So far, we haven't completely experienced that yet this year, but we know from last year that the bad starts are really bad. You just hope he minimizes those.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did have an issue last year of giving up home runs, and he did give up a big-time homer in this game on Tuesday afternoon. It was only a solo homer, but it was quite a homer by Dalton Varsho to center field for a one nothing. Arizona lead. Uh, the homer coming in the top of the third came on a uh, two out first pitch solo homer when it projected 406 feet per stat cast. But, you know, I always wonder too with a guy like Gray if Davey has in the back of his mind, let's get him out while his final line can still be good. You know, like if there, I know managers will never admit to that, but if you say to yourself, all right, now would be a good time to end Josiah's day. You get out with him. He can feel good about himself instead of trying to push it. You know, like I said, Dave, he's never going to say that. But I, I do wonder sometimes if he thinks of that.
1: He actually did kind of say it after this one. <laughs> he, he started with the, you know, the matchup with Doolittle and all that. But then he also said something to the effect of, I wanted him to come out feeling good about himself. It's human nature, uh, especially with a young pitcher, to want to let them. Leave feeling like they did a good job And not potentially ruin What had been a good start And now maybe that's kind of stuck in your head For the next five days And you don't feel as good about it So yeah, he actually admitted it And I think it does happen, certainly with young pitchers
0: (music) 3535, or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash Bluewire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Bluewire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Rainy sets. It'll be a 2-0 pitch. And it's on the way. Swing and a broken bat. Pop-up foul. Franco coming over near the stands. Has a play. And he makes the catch for the out two away. And Franco makes the play.
0: Two out here in the ninth inning with the bases loaded. So the Nats' starting pitching was very good on Tuesday. But the Nats' relief pitching on Tuesday was outstanding. Game one, four Nats relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Game two, three Nats relievers combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. This bullpen, I mean, it's a weird deal, right? Because you never know what to think about these Nats bullpens going into seasons. Early in the season, like over the first few games, the bullpen did not look good. And we've had this conversation, right, of how long can you keep leaning on three to five relievers per game? Well, basically, since the opening series of the season, that bullpen has actually been pretty good. Like, there's been a lot to like. And on Tuesday, you really had the high point of the season so far for the bullpen. Uh, Sean Doolittle, Steve Ciszek, Kyle Finnegan, and Austin Voth all getting the job done In game one, Doolittle did finally not retire a batter, so uh, he's not going to be perfect the entire year, unfortunately. But then in game two, Victor Arano, Kyle Finnegan, and Tanner Rainey. Uh, Arano comes into the game, top of the seventh, runner on first, one out, nats up one nothing. Arano strikes out the two batters he faces. Kyle Finnegan then tosses a perfect top of the eighth, and then Tanner, the tightrope Walker Rainey. In the top of the ninth inning, how about this? He loads the bases with nobody out, gives up a leadoff single to David Peralta, issues a walk to Kristen Walker, gives up a single to Paven Smith. You're saying to yourself, oh boy, a good day is about to end in a bad way. And then Rainey somehow gets out of the jam, records three consecutive outs, including striking out Seth Beer, On four pitches for the first out. And, you know, I was thinking about this young closer, maybe an experience like that is actually good for him. I mean, you don't like to see your closer flirt with danger like that. But that experience of knowing, you know, you can screw up to where you load the bases with nobody out in a one run game. And yet you escape unscathed. I actually think there's some value in that. But bottom line, what a job by the Nats bullpen on Tuesday.
1: So you remember, Al, a year ago, we had Chad Cordero on the podcast, and I think I specifically asked him about a one nothing game that he once saved in which he loaded the bases, maybe even slipped on one pitch, loaded the bases with nobody out, and still got out of it to seal the one nothing win. And that's all I was thinking tonight watching Rainey out there. It was very reminiscent. I'm sure Chad, if he was paying attention, would have high praise for what Tanner did in this game. I mean, look, it's not the way you draw it up, not the way you want to do it, but I agree there's maybe some value in learning how to get out of a self-made jam like that. They had Hunter Harvey warming as things were starting to devolve, and what I don't know the answer to is, would he have only come in after Rainey blew the lead, or was there a scenario in which somehow he might have come in to try to clean it up and actually get the save? So we'll never know. But good on Tanner for getting that done. It wasn't easy. You know, he also... He didn't pitch in the first game, but he warmed up twice. So they were up by, I think it was two runs going into the bottom of the eighth. And so you have Rainy Warming as your closer. Well, all of a sudden they start rallying.
3: And the Nationals have added three to their lead here in the bottom of the eighth inning. Now Washington six and Arizona one.
1: And now Voth gets up as well. And it's this case of, well, it's a three-run lead now. If they get it to four, that probably means that Voth is going to pitch instead. And sure enough, that's what happens. They take a beyond a save length of a lead. So now Voth pitches. But then Voth puts two guys on base. So now Rainey has to start warming up again. And so he literally warmed up twice without pitching, then came back and pitched in the nightcap with a header. Again, not ideally how you want to do this. But I do wonder if he was maybe a little more fatigued than you would normally be if you sat around all day and just came in for the ninth inning of the nightcap.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. And I think there very well could be merit to that. You know, it's interesting looking at these bullpen performances, right? Because you had Kyle Finnegan pitching in both games. You do see that sometimes with doubleheaders, But, you know, I think Kyle Finnegan is to be commended for doing that. So that jumped out. Austin Voth didn't do exactly as Rainey did, but Voth did flirt with some danger in the ninth inning of game one. He gave up back-to-back singles to begin the top of the ninth, although the Nats obviously had a more sizable lead in that game. And, you know, I was glad to see Steve Ciszek do as he did in game one because he's coming off that rough outing. You know, he's new to the Nats. He has a good track record. You don't want to see a season get off track this early in the year. And he goes out there perfect top of the seventh two strikeouts, you know, so you feel like, okay, he's back to being Where he is. And then with Hunter Harvey, it seems like Davey likes Hunter Harvey. He's already used him in some fairly high leverage spots. You know, we know the deal with Hunter Harvey. If he's healthy, he's a flamethrower. He can be an effective bullpen guy. I know Davey probably didn't have like, you know, a truckload of options were he to pull Rainey. But you can tell, right, by usage who Davey likes. He clearly likes Victor Arano. I think Davey's starting to like himself some Hunter Harvey. I think that's an interesting development here.
1: Yeah, I agree. So what I was going to say is we know the four guys who are the A bullpen, Doolittle, C-Sheck, Finnegan, Rainey. I think Arano and Harvey have graduated from the B bullpen. They're now the A1 bullpen. Okay. They're like on the verge. They might get there. They're, they're sort of in transition. They're not quite there yet, but they seem to be trending in that direction. And you can tell, like you said, it's the way Davey is using them. He's trusting Arano to pitch in jams. He's his fireman. When the starter gets into trouble or another reliever gets into trouble, he's going to Arano more often than not. He's gotten it done. It hasn't been every time. It's a little, you know, still needs to establish some consistency there. And Hunter Harvey, you're right. You see the arm. He's got probably better arm than anybody else in the bullpen. Now, he's got to show that he can harness it, that he can do it night in and night out and stay healthy. But if that all pans out, that's going to be a big arm for them to look at. And we've discussed it a few times, but I mean, there is legitimate bullpen depth here, something that this team has not had in a long time. And it's frankly what made a doubleheader like this possible. Think about if they play this exact same doubleheader a couple years ago. How does he manage the bullpen? You're going to end up having Doolittle and Hudson and Fernando Rodney pitching both ends of the doubleheader I mean Fernando Rodney literally pitched the ninth inning of both games of doubleheader in 2019 that's what they had resorted to and they did not have to do anything like that in this game that tells you they do finally have some actual bullpen depth that's the only way you get through a doubleheader like this the way they did
0: Yeah. I mean, with bullpens, it's quality, but it's also quantity. Like you need multiple guys, especially a team like this with questionable starting pitching. And at least for now, it does appear as if the Nats do have themselves some bullpen depth. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Get your degree in savings during Window Nation's spring break sale. Get two free windows for every two windows that you buy for as many as you need. And Make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. Just call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. As you surely know, we have been having very up and down temperatures lately. With up and down temperatures, it's difficult to stay comfortable in your home with old drafty windows. The longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you waste on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. Buy two windows, get two free. Pay nothing for two years. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two full years. Save thousands. These are savings that you'll only see once this year. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you.
3: And the pitch. Swing and a line drive deep down the left field line, hooking toward the corner. It's a fair ball. Stays in play. Racing for third Escobar, being waved home. And the throw will not be made. The throw is held by the shortstop Perdomo. Standing at second. With a double, his first extra base hit of the year, and his fourth run batted in is Victor Robles. And this game is all tied here in the bottom of the fifth inning. It's now the Diamondbacks one of the Nationals one. Robles makes Marte pay for the drop pop.
0: So with the Nats offense in this doubleheader sweep, the offense remains in a place that's, you know, not great. The offense wasn't terrible in game one. It really wasn't much of anything in game number two. But two guys really stood out to me, Cesar Hernandez and Victor Robles. So go figure Cesar Hernandez. He had not registered an extra base hit this entire season, right? We've talked about this. The Nats, they are getting some singles, but they're not hitting for like any power right now. And they continue to to not hit for much power. Zero homers for the Nats in this doubleheader on Tuesday. But Cesar Hernandez, zero extra base hits over the Nats' first 11 games of the season. He ends up having an RBI double in each game on Tuesday. So such is life. But Hernandez in Game 1 in the Nats' two-run fifth, a two-out RBI double down the left field line to give the Nats a 2-1 lead. And then Hernandez in Game 2 in the Nats' one-run sixth, an RBI double off the bottom of the left field wall for a one nothing Nats lead. So good to see that from Cesar Hernandez. But I don't think anything was better in terms of like what could be and what this might mean than Victor Robles. You know, I know he did the recent work with Darnell Coles. Robles, I thought, looked good at the plate in each of these two games. He, in game one of the doubleheader, went one for three with an RBI double. He, in the two-run Nats fifth, had a two-out RBI double near the left field corner on a 1-2 pitch. To tie the game at one, and this was a legit double. You know, last year I talked to you about Robles. He actually had a decent amount of doubles, but so many of them seemed like these cheapy doubles. This double in Game One, per stat cast had an exit velocity of hundred six point eight miles per hour. The double actually broke up a no-hit bid by the Arizona starter, Madison Bumgarner, and then Robles in Game Two, one for three with a single, and the single was a well-struck single. Uh, Robles in the Nats, one run six, a leadoff single to left field. The single per stat cast, an exit velocity of 97.5 miles per hour. I get it with Robles, right? The bar is low, and we take any positive sign as like a big deal, but he, to me, is looking better here over these last few games.
1: Yeah, we've noticed it for a few days, and it's not even just the results, but you could see the better process. But eventually, you do need to see some results. You know, it's only natural to get down on yourself if you still aren't raising the batting average at all. And so what he has done is three straight games that he's produced a hit. They've all been meaningful hits. What I liked about the hits in the doubleheader is that they came with two strikes. And that's been such a problem area for him where he will expand the zone Chase pitches that he shouldn't be swinging at in the first place. So for him to deliver in those spots with two strikes, I think is a very good sign. You could see we talked to him after game one. He was in a good mood, felt good about it. Defensively, he was all over the place on uh, Tuesday night, tracking down balls left and right. Almost pulled off another miraculous catch at the wall. He's had a nice few days here. Okay, now it's only a few days, and he's still you know got an upward climb to get to where he needs to go, but. It's got to be just a little bit of a shot in the arm for him, a little boost of confidence for him, just to have a couple of good games. And real quick on Cesar Hernandez, you mentioned the double. He was all over the Dimeback starter, Tyler Gilbert, and that at bat. He hooked what should have been a home run foul moments earlier, really got a hold of it, and then I think it's two pitches later, hits the double off the wall. So you could see like he had Tyler Gilbert timed out and knew exactly what he was doing in that at bat, and that was good to see him produce the only run that they scored in that game.
0: Yeah, it's a funny thing with Hernandez because he had a career high of home runs last season. His slugging percentage actually went very good, but he hit the most homers he's ever hit in a season. I know Davey Martinez going into the season talked about, yeah, you know what? We actually don't want him to be the home run guy. We want him to be more of an on-base guy. Well, I don't know if Davey meant to not have any extra base hits, but uh, he does finally get... Two doubles on Tuesday. Yeah, you mentioned Robles on Tuesday night defensively. So that top of the fourth inning, Robles, this was like the Victor Robles show that inning. He begins the inning by making a great diving forward catch of a lineout by Christian Walker on the very first pitch of the inning.
2: Christian Walker leads off. The first pitch is line to center field, racing in is Robles into a dive, and he caught
0: it. What a play by Victor Robles, headlong diving in toward the infield. Then he nearly makes a tremendous catch of a deep fly ball by Paven Smith. The baseball went off Robles' glove, then off the center field wall, and then came back to Robles on what was a one out double by Smith. And then Robles made a really nice running catch on the right center field warning track of a deep fly out by Carson Kelly for the third out. And you really can't. Overemphasizes the amount of real estate that Robles covered. He is so fast out there, and he takes such great routes to the ball. And it always comes back to this, but it's like if he can just be like a league average batter. Nobody's asking him to be Ken Griffey Jr., but just be decent offensively. That plus the plus defense makes for a really good player. What we saw in 2019, and you know, I know we had that odd 2020 defensively where he put on the weight. And he wasn't as good. He was better last year. And at least so far this year, he does look to be in a good place defensively.
1: Yeah, he has looked like his best version of himself out there. And to his credit, no matter what's been going on at the plate, he has not taken that into the field with him. That's a good sign. That's always a concern with any player who's struggling in in part of his game that it will let it affect the other part of his game. You're right. I mean, think about the three parts of the field that he had to cover on those three plays. You couldn't get farther apart from each other. And I know it doesn't count as a catch. It's a double because the ball deflected off the wall. And by rule, that's a hit. I almost feel like that was the most impressive play of them all. Just the fact that he still came down with the ball in his glove without it ever touching the ground. It's a double, but I'm giving him some uh, little extra credit for that one because I thought that was a phenomenal Both the ground he covered and then the agility and the concentration to hold on to the ball after all that.
0: Yeah, he should get like half a put out for that or something. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, why not? Figure out the scoring on that. How about this? Uh, The Nats swept the doubleheader despite Juan Soto going hitless over the two games. The Nats won game two despite Soto, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell going a combined 0 for 10 with one walk. So yeah, I mean, this does speak to the Diamondbacks. They're not a very good team, but you know, newsflash, the Nats aren't exactly a pennant contender. So for them to do what they did on Tuesday was good to see. Happy to see the Nats do this. I do want to ask you about two other things regarding what happened on Tuesday. Number one, the attendance. So the announced attendance figures for Tuesday were not good. Game one, 9,261. Game two, 11,000. 720. You know, look, we understand the deal, especially with a game like Game 1, right? Because it's afternoon game, middle of April. You know, the weather on Tuesday was not the greatest in terms of the temperature. It was sunny, but it was unusually cold for this time of year. But this doesn't figure to be a great year attendance-wise for the Nats. And you just, you know, you say to yourself, how bad might things get? Well, we'll see what the Nats end up being as this season goes on. Do you think internally the Nats are alarmed, though, by just how low Those numbers were, I mean, again, 9,000 plus in game one and then under 12,000 for game two.
1: I don't think they're alarmed because I think they probably knew this was coming. And every year I look at the schedule and I look at April and I look at weeknights against non-premier teams, teams that don't have, you know, not the Mets, not the Phillies, a team that's going to draw. A Monday and Tuesday in April against the Diamondbacks is almost certainly going to be your lowest attendance of the year. And what that does is it tells you what the season ticket base is to, you know, remember when they announce the attendance, that's the paid tickets. It doesn't mean how many people showed up to the ballpark. It's how many tickets they sold for the game. So I go into the day thinking, okay, whatever number we see here, And this one is probably pretty close to what their season ticket base is. They had never in their history drawn fewer than 10,999 fans to a game. That was way back in 2010, a September game against the Astros. Now, the caveat to this is that in the first game, it is a makeup game. Now, the way they do the attendance for this, and I asked and I wanted to confirm about this, it's still tickets sold. It's not who came to the park. But if anybody had a ticket to Monday night's game and swapped it out. You were allowed to exchange it for a different game if you didn't want to come Tuesday at one o'clock. So if anybody did swap that out for a different game later in the year, that ticket will count towards that future game. So the attendance number for the Tuesday afternoon game is lower than whatever it originally would have been on Monday. A little complicated here, but I want to explain that to say that, yes, the number was 9,000, the lowest they've ever had, but I think the Tuesday night number of 11720 is probably a good accurate reflection of what their season ticket base is this year. I'm doubting they've sold any more than that. And hopefully that's the low point. And as the summer comes around, the weather heats up, school gets out, the numbers go up. But that's the difference. In their peak, they had more than 20,000 season ticket holders. Even going back to RFK in the early years of Nationals Park, and then as the team got good and became a a contender, you saw very few crowds ever under 20,000. What we've now seen progressively, it's taken a little bit of time, but it's sort of bottoming out now, is a season ticket base that has gone way down, and you just don't get a lot of single game sales for a Tuesday night in April against the Diamondbacks. So that's the number I'm looking at. I don't think it's a surprise. It's about what I was expecting.
0: When you say lowest ever, does that include RFK or is that just for Nationals Park?
1: Yes, lowest in Nationals history. RFK actually, I'm pretty sure maybe like 18,000 or something was the lowest because they had a very large season ticket base in year one. They lost some of them in year two, but they still maintained a lot in year three because it was a case of if you get season tickets now, you're guaranteed seats for the new ballpark. So that was a promotional thing that helped them keep the numbers up even when the team wasn't good, even when the ballpark wasn't good. So their lowest attended years, even 08 was pretty good because it was the first year of the ballpark. It's 09 and 010 and 11 are kind of the low points for them. Uh, and like I said, t- 2010 was until this day the lowest uh, single game attendance. And again, this is not people in the park. There have been games, makeup games, where there's you know like a thousand people there. The official number is tickets sold. And what they sold for the Tuesday's makeup game is now the lowest attendance in Nationals history.
0: Yeah. I mean, that game one number, that was PNC Park territory. I mean, that was Pittsburgh yeah. Pirates territory. And Watching the game on television, I mean, you could tell like there was nobody there. There was no atmosphere to the game at all. So yeah, I mean, look, I don't blame anyone these days for not going to games. Games are expensive. Games take time. We understand this is the predicament that the Nats are in. I give the Nats and their fans credit because for years, the Nats have drawn well. And actually for years, the Nats have rated well in terms of local television. Their TV numbers have actually been quite good over the years. So, you know, if you're going to have a dip here now for a season or two, I I think it's the kind of thing that you can accept. I mean, nobody loves it, but it is understandable. The other thing I want to ask you about is, so Davey Martinez, after the game to win, did not speak to you guys for a while. And I bring this up because I know you noted this, Jesse Doherty noted this. It was unusual, right? Davy made you guys wait for like 30 minutes or so. And I bring this up not because like, oh, you know, woe is the media or anything like that. But, you know, you worry when something like that happens, like did something happen? Because usually it's bad news that causes a manager to not speak to you guys for a while after a game. What did Davy have to say about that delay?
1: So, first of all, it was more than 30 minutes after the game ended. For those who don't know, typically a manager is going to be into the press conference, I'd say, within 10 minutes after the game being over. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And when it does, it's usually because they're actually making a roster move. So they had to call somebody into the office when the game's over and tell them, hey, we're sending you down a AAA. We have to do the paperwork and all that. So anytime, just having been there so many times, you kind of internally in your head have a clock and you're saying, okay, well, it's already been 10 minutes. Oh, now it's 15. Okay. They're probably making a roster move. So that's what I'm kind of thinking. Well, now it gets to 20. I'm thinking, this is, I'm kind of entering rare territory. This is not normal for it to be that. This is usually some kind of significant thing going on. Now we get to like 25, and one of the only times I ever remember it taking that long, to be honest, is the night that Jim Riggleman resigned out of the blue. So I wasn't worried about anything like that happening, but it does, you know, your mind starts spinning, and you're like, okay, what could be going on? Clearly something seems to be going on. Well, it ends up more than a half hour. He finally comes in. Jesse Doherty of the post asked him, you know, just, this is unusual. You took this long. Is anything, anything going on? You guys make a roster move. And, and Davies said, no, we were just, uh, spending a lot of time with Joanna Doan, letting him celebrate his first major league win. And Jesse pushed a little more, asked about some other stuff. He said, well, you know, that's all within the circle of trust that they have. And, you know, we don't really share that. So take him at his word. Don't take him at his word. I suppose. We could find out more on Wednesday if there are roster moves made. Maybe that's what was going on. Sometimes they don't like to announce them right away because they want the players who have been demoted to uh, have a chance to leave the ballpark without being interviewed by us knowing what had happened. We'll see. I would not be surprised if there is some kind of news that explains why it did take so long. But what they were telling us, and at least what I witnessed with my own eyes going in the clubhouse afterwards, I did not see anything out of the ordinary.
0: Yeah, so we did want to note this in case there is significant Nats news over the next 24 hours. You heard it here first that there could be news that is coming, but we hope that everything's all right. I was kind of worried that like something bad had happened and Davey was like breaking bad news to people, but hopefully that's not what took place. Well, you tell us what you think. Very good day for the Nats on Tuesday. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nat's Chat Pod, hit up Tim Shover's. Again, the email address is Nat's Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Our new Nat's Chat Podcast t-shirt is out. It is red. It is fantastic. You can get yours by going to Nats square dot site. That's Nat's Chat Podcast dot square dot site all nationals radio highlights on Natch shatter courtesy of 1067 the fan we continue to very much enjoy your tales of your first games uh in terms of attending major league games we're getting all kinds of great submissions for this you can send us an email with your story you can also send us a voice memo with your story in that's chat podcast at gmail.com and so we will leave you with this tale from eric in the dominican republic And we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
4: Hi, Al, Mark, and Tim. This is your number one fan for Nats Chat Podcast, living in the Dominican Republic. And today I just wanted to share with you, it probably wasn't the first baseball game I went to, but the first really good memory I have that was uh, April 3rd, 1989. It was at Memorial Stadium, Baltimore Orioles versus the Boston Red Sox. Roger Clemens, who was a two-time Cy Young Award winner, was pitching. And because the Orioles had been so bad the year before in 1988, they actually began the year losing their first 21 games. There was very little uh, hope for them in 1989. But that game, uh, my dad had actually got me a bunch of tickets for my buddies and I for my birthday. I remember seeing my hero for the time, Cal Ripken Jr., hit a three-run homer off of the rocket, and in the 11th inning, Craig Worthington had a walk-off hit to win the game, and that really kind of propelled the Orioles to a wonderful season, a really fun season where they almost went from worst to first. They actually lost to the Blue Jays in the last weekend of the season uh, to miss out on the playoffs, but... That was just such a great memory and really kind of kindled my love for baseball. I remember being in a packed house, 52,000 plus at Old Memorial Stadium, which was not a very beautiful stadium, but really had a great impression on me uh, just to love baseball. And so that's what I wanted to share today. Thanks again for the great podcast and keep up the good work. The fans file into Memorial Stadium, and we're waiting for the number one fan right now, President Bush, to arrive. Uh, Frank Robinson meeting at home plate with the umpires as they exchange lineups. Don Denkinger, Larry McCoy, Steve Palermo, and Derwood Merrill, the umpires today. Two and two count. One out. Memorial's on second and third. Hit deep to left. La-
5: Could be over it. Greenwell's head.